Hello, and welcome to Views from the Market, Mid-Market Private Equity and M&A in Canada. My name is Mario Negro, and I'm a partner in the Private Equity and M&A Group at Steichman Elliott. For today's podcast, I'd like to welcome Vimal Kotech. Vimal is a partner in the Valuations and Dispute Advisory Practice at Richter. Vimal, thank you and welcome. My pleasure being here, Mario. Very nice to see you again, and thanks for the invitation. Vimal, we always start our podcast with getting to know our guests. So I'm going to ask a little bit about you, a little bit about yourself, your practice, and about Richter. Yeah. By background, I'm a chartered accountant and a chartered business valuator. For the last 25 years, my practice has focused primarily on valuation issues and dispute analysis issues. I am a partner at Richter. Some of you may know historically as being a traditional accounting firm, we've actually evolved over the last, I would say the last five to seven years into being a business family office. And what that means is we operate really on two different platforms. One is a business advisory, which contains the historical audit and tax and business advisory. But the second platform is the family office. And ideally our ideal client would be a mixture of the two. And so for example, uh, an entrepreneur or founder who needs the business advisory side, but also as their business grows and ultimately monetizes their business, they would flow into the family office platform that we have. And so we find that, uh, you know, that's very helpful for our clients where it's a very seamless approach from one end of the spectrum to the other. Bima, you've been around a long time. You still look young, but you know, you, you're a seasoned <laughs> I mean, You've been through many an up and down. And one of the things that is exciting about this topic is the amount of experience that you bring given evaluations and dispute is particularly relevant given the times that we're in. You know, it's a strange time. We went through a couple of years of crazy M&A and now all of a sudden we're starting to see the impact with the market softening of, of a lot of these kind of purchase price disputes, purchase agreement disputes. And you've been busy, you're in the front lines, you're seeing these. And I wanted to talk a bit more with you about you know, what the trends are, what you're seeing, and maybe start just by kind of ground zero. Tell us a little bit about the kind of purchase price disputes that you're seeing in the market. And frankly, why are we seeing more of them right now? Yeah, maybe I'll start with the why and then I'll get into the particulars because, you know, as you've rightly noted, we've had an exceptional transaction market in the last couple of years called post-COVID which drew a number of transactions, a high volume of transactions, but also higher valuations than we've ever seen before. And I think that was true up until probably the first quarter of 2023, where obviously we are all well aware of the spike in interest rates, the slowdown in the economy. And what that's done is it's really caused purchasers in particular to reflect on the businesses that they bought over the last couple of years, maybe it's a little bit of buyer's remorse. Maybe it's the impact of what's happening in the economy and what's that doing to businesses. They're not meeting their expectations. And I think that's driving a lot of post-purchase price disputes. And we are seeing a higher proportion it this year in particular than what we've seen in the past. When everyone's making money, everyone's happy. When things have gone the other way, people are unhappy and that's where disputes tend to rise. And we are definitely seeing that. Where are you seeing them? We talk about purchase price. Where are you most likely to see disputes in this environment or 
frankly, you're on the front lines. Where are you in your practice here in Abdima? Yeah, there's probably about four or five different areas where we're seeing post-purchase price disputes. By far, working capital, right? By far, we're seeing a huge proportionate of disputes in the working capital arena. Secondly, if there's a payment of a contingent consideration, for example, an earnout or a milestone payment that's supposed to happen in the future, we're seeing disputes in that area and certainly a large amount of disputes in that area. And if you think about it is businesses are not hitting what they thought they were going to hit in the forecast or their projections. And so that has a direct impact on what the vendor is going to get paid through an earnout. And if they're not meeting those projections, then there becomes an increased tension between the purchaser and the vendor as to, well, why aren't you hitting those numbers? Oh, you've changed the nature of the business. Why have you changed the nature of the business? That wasn't our agreement. And so we're seeing a huge amount of increase in that area. Third, breach of rep and warranties. You know, the vendor has repped about the quality of the financial information, the quality of the client relationship. And we're starting to see sometimes there's an interpretation that maybe that rep and warranty wasn't as strong as what it should have been. So we're seeing that as well. Breach of non-comps, you know, we've seen that before. We're seeing that a lot more now. Breach of confidentiality. Sometimes that comes into play where the vendor has gone to work for somebody else over a period of time. And interestingly enough, allegations of bad faith, which sort of transverse all of those, but we're starting to see more and more of that as well. Bimo, can I ask you, when you're examining these disputes, what do they come down to? What are the underlying fundamentals on these disputes? And I know from my experience, sometimes it's definitional, sometimes yes. it's people's framework. I, and I know one of the ones that we often see is interpreting things like gap or historical accounting practices and, you know, how that plays out the difference between gap and historical accounting practices. What are the underlying, some of the underlying issues that are driving these disputes, or maybe what are they arguing about? If that makes sense. As you know, when you're putting together an agreement, it is impossible to tackle or to forecast all the scenarios that may happen after the transaction has been completed. And that's part of it is something may have come up that the parties did not contemplate. So that's one scenario, but you're absolutely right is, is definitional. What is gap? Make sure, and what I'm sure we're going to get into this in more detail is, as to how can you minimize sort of post-purchase price disputes. You know, Vimo, I know when we talk about these working capital disputes, one of the issues that continually arises is the definition of gap and the different interpretations of the definition of gap. And I want to get a sense of what you're seeing and, you know, how that influences these disputes. Yeah, that's a common issue that we come across. So gap is short for generally accepted accounting principles. And often people think it's a set of rules or standards. It's not quite that definitive, right? Because it's really principles that people can apply. And you may interpret gap a little bit differently than what I may interpret gap. And they both may be right. And so having that understanding of what principles are we going to do the calculation under and that usually falls into, you know, there's often a paragraph or a line that says, you know, in accordance with GAP, consistent with past practice. So those two items should really be read together because GAP can be interpreted in many different ways. 
I often recommend an illustration, you know, put, put that into as a disclosure schedule in the agreement. I think that helps tremendously in people like me who come in after the fact to really understand what was the spirit of the agreement, what were in the minds of the vendor and the purchaser at the time. If there's an illustration, that helps a lot. Change in economics and change of business plan. Make sure you have that discussion up front and make sure that the vendor and the purchaser are aligned, again, to the best that they can be aligned. And I know circumstances change over time that, oh, maybe the purchaser wants to go into a different direction. What sort of impact will that have on the financials and what sort of impact will that have on the earnout? Most often, that discussion is never had, right? Which is unfortunate. And I appreciate it's time sensitive. Everybody's rushing to get the deal done. But take a moment and have that discussion. I think it would help and go a long way. You know, you've already gone to where I want to go, and I'm going to keep going there, which is I always find for us when we see these disputes, we're kind of looking backwards and going to ourselves, man, if we could have done it differently, this is what we would have done. You hit on a couple of them. So I'm going to, just because that's practical, and I know it's funny how we say this to people, knowing what we know now, you know, we would have done that differently. And you know, I'm curious to get your perspective on a few more of these, if you can, if there are other ones, because I mean, this is the problem with these type of clauses. When they're in the middle of it, people kind of go so quick, they don't think it through. But then when you look at it now, you can kind of say, hey, you should have, you know, I'm wondering if we could tease out a few more examples, because I think ways to minimize seems to be the driver and frankly saves a lot of money and time and effort. So. I think the key is focusing on that dispute mechanism clause or clauses. I know it's, you know, kind of put it in and everyone's kind of reads it and goes like quickly and you're on to the next issue. That's of great importance because quite frankly, you think you know, most people think that you're never going to invoke that clause, right? Hopefully. But I would suggest sort of stepping back a little bit and looking at that clause and really understanding if something goes wrong and getting a litigator's perspective on understanding that clause and how it may impact them. I'll give you an example. I'm working through one now where the dispute resolution clause is not very clear. And so that's caused different interpretations between the parties. And quite frankly, the independent accountant who's been appointed into what did they really mean? And so now we're getting into various different submissions about what did they mean by this word or what did they mean by that word? And it could have been avoided. I think a lot of it could have been avoided if that clause was very clear. And so I think that's very important. Timelines, realistic timelines. I think that's something that we need to think about. And I know it's often written. 60 days after close, the purchaser will provide the closing statement. The vendor has 30 days to look at it and file an onus of objection. They then have 30 days to mediate the dispute. And then it goes into picking a, an independent accountant, whether it's an arbitrator or an expert. And then they have like 45 days to resolve the issue or something like that. I would tend to revisit those timelines because realistically, I think if you talk to certainly a person like me or somebody from your litigation department, those are pretty tight timelines to be dealing with, particularly if you're going full-born or working capital issue. And so again, if you go down that path, make sure that clause and the wording and the timelines is very clear and also very realistic to the parties. 
Mimo, when you look back now at some of these disputes, you come to an appreciation of just how active the marketplace was in 21 and 22. And what people were doing was kind of very unique in terms of the way that they price deals and how much they were willing to pay. And now that you see what it's led to with some of these disputes, are these disputes also a reflection of the fact that we were in a crazy market where interest rates were low? And I mean, are these disputes sometimes not even about the words? Are they also about people's idea that they just simply paid too much money and I got to find the way to get some of it back? Because I'm seeing some of that now. People are like, I don't care how we make a claim. I paid too much money and I want, you know, I'm, I'm curious if you're seeing some of that too. Yeah, no doubt, right? We all got caught up in it in terms of the post-COVID bump. I know some people have called it that. Low interest rates, a lot of dry powder in the marketplace, which drove up valuations. And it was sort of who could bid the highest at a certain point. And I think people like you and I, who have been around for a long time, we've sort of seen the cycle go up. We've seen the cycle go down. We've seen the cycle stay down for a long period of time. And I think, yes, I think you're absolutely right. That has driven a lot of what I've seen going on right now. And if the purchaser can claw back some money, then it helps them in hitting their rates of return over time. And I think it aligns them with what's happening with the business today versus what may have been happening in 2020, 21, and 22, and what they price the business at going forward. A lot of it is about price disparity, right? The economic impacts that we're having is that the businesses that I've seen, particularly going through these issues, are not hitting the numbers that they were projected to be. And what that means is, well, the valuations have come down over time. And so how to re re recoup some of that, that lost value is an adjustment to the purchase price. And, you know, the vendors are saying, well, wait a minute, you bought it at a certain period of time with certain expectations. I'm no longer in the business. And so why should I pay a penalty for what has been happening? That's a big conversation that I'm having with clients. Obviously the market has changed. I mean, people are kind of, you know, looking at the stuff with the magnifying glass that's tighter, whatever the word is, more focused. Are you seeing people now focus on issues that maybe two years ago when the times were wild, they weren't. And so now they've kind of, they've become, I know one of the ones I've seen, we used to close on interim statements that were two, three, four months old. Now everybody's taking everything right up to the day. People want numbers right up to closing, right up to the wall. Are you seeing, when you look at some of the factors behind these disputes, how are people responding in terms of the way they do deals? I'm just curious what you're seeing is people's response in this time and how they've changed the way they do some of these working capital analyses or, you know, counting concepts. Yeah, no, for sure. There is a greater amount of scrutiny today than there was, say, two years ago, right? And deals are taking longer to get done. Some deals are falling off because, you know, the businesses, when they started the LOI process, the business was at a certain level. Now, three, four, five, six months later, it's not tracking the same. And so they're getting repriced. They're falling out. We're seeing a lot of that. But there is certainly a lot more scrutiny on, for example, the maintainable EBITDA, the customer concentration, the increasing cost. That's been a big factor, right? Inventory. I was going to ask you, I know inventory. the amount of 
times I've seen inventory come up in the last year or two, and we used to very rarely talk about now inventory is scrutinized to the last degree with inventory reps. And, and I know that's one of those ones where, you know, people were a lot more lenient on inventory calculations than they are now. Now they are in there, man. They are deep in there now. Yep. Inventory valuations, inventory obsolescence. We're seeing a huge amount in inventory obsolescence. Uh, oh, it's been sitting around for a while. Is it obsolete? Is it not obsolete? You know, in interesting story. I had one where the business in the ordinary course, and that's a term that I know you guys like to use a lot, used to buy a lot of inventory because they got preferential pricing. But so they would hold the inventory. They didn't care. They got they would buy it cheap, they would hold the inventory and they would make their product. And that's what drove the financial performance, right? And so now the financial performance is higher. Now in a transaction or post-transaction, there's scrutiny over that inventory and saying, well, now you have hold too much inventory. Yes, but they always held that much inventory and it drove the financial performance and it ultimately drove the transaction price. And so now you can't have it two ways. And so that's a discussion that I'm seeing happen more and more. I know one of the other ones I want to ask you about is just things like bad debts, contingent yeah. liability, warranties. These are, again, things were a couple of years ago. It's amazing how warranty claims were discounted, but now all of a sudden the analysis of, so I want to get your thoughts if those are some of the other areas you're seeing and what you're seeing on the ground in terms of the analysis of these issues in this environment. You know, bad debts and provisions like that obviously have a huge impact on financial performance. And we are seeing those things in a marketplace where companies are struggling to pay their payables, right? It's no secret. That obviously has an impact on working capital and the calculation of the working capital true up. And so really it's an economic environment where nobody really thought and it's a sudden economic environment change. And nobody really thought about, oh, what's going to happen a year from now or 18 months from now and the impact it may have on the business. Going back to your earlier point, is it a bit of buyer's remorse? Is it a bit of, well, things are not aligning as to what we thought it was going to align to? Perhaps, right? I think that's all important to take into consideration. Yeah, Vima, you've seen over the years, so many of these disputes and yeah. when you look back now and you try to imagine what it would take not to have a dispute or what people could have done to change it. I mean, is there any tips or any suggestions you would make as people work through working capital that you would say they should kind of have on their agenda to try and not get into these, or at least they'll help to not get into these type of disputes? Yeah, look, you and I have both been doing this long enough that we've seen what not to do. And we sort of learn from our experience. And I would say, yeah, I think there's a couple of issues. And I look at it in sort of three different buckets. The first bucket is, is the company ready to go to market or is it ready to sell, right? And that's often called seller readiness. And having an advisor to sort of scrub the numbers, to look under the hood, even before you go to market to identify these issues and come up with a plan of, okay, we found an issue, we found two issues. How do we explain it? And I think that would go a long way in avoiding some of these disputes that we see after the fact. The second bucket I would say is during the course of the negotiations and the transaction itself, 
I'm a big fan of schedules, calculations, illustrations, so that everyone is on the same page. So there's no question after the fact of, oh, I thought this was how we were going to calculate it, right? It's known to people during the course of the transaction, attach it to the SPA. I think that's great. And I've seen people do that before. The third bucket is after the deal is done, you're three months afterwards or you're six months afterwards and an issue arises. And so how do you deal with that issue? And I know everyone has different perspectives. The vendor has a perspective. The purchaser has a perspective. I would highly recommend getting a second opinion. And why I say that is sometimes you're too close to the issue to get an objective opinion or a viewpoint. And so if you get somebody else who has the experience, who has gone through this, they may say to you is, yes, I understand your point. However, if you go to the calculation, if you go to the agreement, this would be my viewpoint. And I think having that second opinion is helpful in sort of either affirming your viewpoint or affirming that there may be an alternative to it. And so when you say, how can we sort of better handle those things? I would say those are the three buckets that I would look at. I want to ask you, Vima, and I ask all our guests, I call it the crystal ball question. Given where you're at, what you're seeing and where the market is, what are your thoughts in terms of where the market's going? Are we going to see more of these? Is this, are you at the top? Are we going to be <laughs> seeing a lot? I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, I always say this to the litigators, obviously, like disputes. I don't, but you kind of do. So is this, yeah. is this an area and you just get your expectations of what you see coming down in terms of your work and, you know, some of the disputes you're seeing and some of the expectations that you see for the coming years ahead in, in your work? Yeah, great question. And uh, I wish I did have a crystal ball sometimes. I think what we're going to assume is obviously the number of transactions has come down over the last little while. And so just on that basis alone, I think we're going to see probably fewer working capital disputes or post-partial price disputes. I think there's going to be greater scrutiny given the economic environment that we are in on performance. And I think that's helpful. Uh, and I think that's a good thing to do. There's always going to be disputes because of interpretations or changes in the economic environment. I think there's always going to be a, be a baseline of disputes and advisory that needs to be done. I don't think, or I'd be surprised to see this level next year. If we're having this chat next year, I would be surprised that if we had the same level next year that we do this year. Well, Vima, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And, you know, to me, your kind of work is always an indicator of where the market's at. And so it's great to get your perspective. And I appreciate you joining us today and telling us a little bit more about some of the trends that you're seeing when it comes to these, uh, these valuations and interest price disputes. My pleasure, Mario. It's nice to see you again.